And my name's Koto. Yeah, how nice to be with you. Every now and again when we're doing names, I remember that maybe, maybe uh, top three things we're doing here is uh, community. <laughs> and I'm just so delighted. So the title for the, title for the talk, the theme for our discussion tonight is uh, Imagination and the Bodhisattva Universe. So, uh, at least a few of us have a memory of being in a theater and um, maybe seeing something associated with the Marvel Universe or the DC Universe or um, as I tend to like the really soft stuff, the Pixar universe. Um, and in some very real way, when we, we enter spaces like this, we, we very quickly, by design, we enter into a different context. We feel, emote, and sense our way into a 4D space with its own logic and its own characters, its own universe. Right, And in a certain way, we kind of permit ourselves to be called into the world of the story. It's great fun. It's really great fun. Uh, and often, we're better for it. I remember how inspired I was the first time I saw Avatar. Like how how I, I had been drawn into that universe. So I wanted to say something about the universe, so to speak, that we're called into in terms of Zen practice. If we want to think in those terms, it's this like, it's this amazing conception of a world in which there are such a thing as Buddhas, there are such a thing as beings on the way to Buddhahood, Bodhisattvas. Um, and the logic of this universe is such the whole arc of it moves toward the compassionate liberation of all beings. It sounds pretty beautiful. I would want to watch that movie. So, the way that this development happens is through the cultivation of a number of qualities. And the way that we talk about it, we talk about it here is the development of something called the Six Perfections the six qualities entailed in Buddhahood. When they're fully mature, that's what happens to us. And then from the perspective of our everyday life, it's just us practicing six practices. And then it can happen in this really interesting context by way of our imagination. So the purpose, what I want to talk about tonight, is to, to validate imagination as a tool that supports us in cultivating these sort of qualities these sort of beautiful qualities, particularly um, the four bodhisattva vows and then these six perfections. And then to bring it right back here, uh, if any of you got the email, the way I stated the problem was something like this. For many of us walking a path of meditation, this comes along with stumbling into such challenges as frustration and self-evaluation. And my proposal is that 
Zen practice employs the imagination while staying clear-eyed about reality. And this can open us into a possibility of wholesome growth. What's important about this is it entails a change of frame or a change of perspective where um, the world, according to me, is, um, at least for a moment, temporarily shifted into some larger context. That's the imagination. So to expand, expand on how I see this sometimes, one, one um, I certainly saw this in myself for a long time, I see it in good friends who practice meditation, the perils of self-evaluation. Does, any, does anyone have that happen? Like you hear, you hear about a path of practice or you hear about specific practice and it's like, does my practice measure up? Which very quickly goes, does my practice measure up? Do I measure up? For a lot of us. The second, second way this can go is something like, we can notice these little bits of self-improvement, I'll say, without, without um, a sort of lasting change or transformation. And that can be discouraging. Right. I think both of these are related. This um, the sort of self-evaluation and then um, the trouble of self-improvement. And the way I want to talk about the, the commonality, the common sticking point, is that the, the primary frame of reference stays I, me, and mine, rather than opening up into something bigger. So this um, conceiving of the world primarily through terms of I, me, and mine has very, very, very deep roots in us. It's important, actually. It's an, it's an important function of our mind. Uh, and we're, we're all intimately aware of the sort of troubles that it causes. Um, but something, something that I'm going to say and sort of repeat myself over and over about this is that using our imagination and using our intention can sort of tap into this different perspective of the Bodhisattva universe where the project of me isn't the only thing that's going on. Something bigger is happening. Take this to the level of the archetypal, and that's where we get into what we call the path of the Bodhisattva. The path of the Bodhisattva that is actually has the, the like, I don't, I don't exactly know if it's like pride or courage or um, folly, delusion, to say, I'm going to awaken for the benefit not just of awakening and you know, not just to solve all my problems, but I'm going to awaken for the benefit of liberating all beings without exception. Sounds like a, big, a pretty big task, right? Um, but we're well supported. You know, in our, in our Zen tradition, we have, we have these narratives. We talk about this development. We talk about this, um, we talk about this path, uh, sometimes using really fantastic images, and we'll invoke the imagination. In, in, in some of these ancient sutras, in a way that just like totally spins the mind. There's a huge, there's this huge uh, sutra called the Avatamsaka Sutra. The head of practice at Tassajara told me that by the time you finish reading it, it's like everything's been rewired. And the whole thing is just fantastic, or fantastical. It's amazing images, 
right? Hmm. So the prototypical story of the Bodhisattva and the Bodhisattva path sort of distilled in its first iteration in the telling of the story of Sumedha. So I wanted to convey this to you in very brief form. And Sumedha is meant to be um, one of the past lives of Shakyamuni Buddha. Yeah, so um, as far as the tradition goes, in, yeah, in, the century, in the centuries following the Buddha's life, they realized like, what an exceptional person this was. And this notion came of like, oh, we really, how in the world did someone accrue all of, the, all of these qualities and virtues and merit over time? And so this literature of the past lives sort of came up. So this is the original one, or the one that's supposed to be earliest. It says that Sumedha was born into nobility. And then this may sound familiar, became dismayed at the inevitability of aging, illness, and death. And then realizing he couldn't take his riches with him beyond the grave, decided to give everything away. He gave away everything he had and uh, went to practice the meditative ascetic practices. This is, is this sounding archetypal? Like seeing the like, big shape of this? So as he was doing this, he heard of the, the arrival or the coming of uh, the coming to his province or town or something of the then Buddha named Didipankara. And not exactly sure why, I can speculate, but he took responsibility for this one stretch of road, like making sure that it was well prepared so that when the Buddha and his retinue walked across, they wouldn't get their feet muddy, I think. But he couldn't finish the whole thing in time. And really not wanting the Buddha to dirty his feet, his, uh, his last-ditch effort in some stories is to take his, take his matted hair and lay it across the last bit of mud so that the Buddha could walk across without dirtying his feet. In some, in some telling, it's a little bit more dramatic. He actually lays his body down to make a bridge. I like the hair thing. But while the, while the Buddha's walking across this say, hair bridge, Sumedha makes this vow. He's so inspired by the Buddha Dipankara that he's like, I want to become a Buddha. Look how beneficial this being is. Like, I really want to do this. And he resolves. He makes a vow. Dipankara apparently knows this and then affirms, yes, this will happen. And then that's the beginning of a bodhisattva path. Sumedha then reflects sometime later, what in the world would the qualities be that I need to develop in order to, in order to become a Buddha, to benefit all beings? And that's when he comes up with the list of perfections. Pretty out there, maybe? I don't know how it stacks up to Pixar and Marvel and DC, but there, there is certainly a way that it, it invites a broader context. I certainly am not in a position to evaluate the the ancient tradition and where the stories came from, you know? But uh, I, I still, I, I find that they move me somehow and open me. And there's a lot to be said for the power of the ancient language. So a story like this does what, I, what I'm, gonna, I'm gonna call, it shifts the frame. It shifts the frame of our point of reference. 
And in, in very concrete San Francisco terms, or like anywhere now, rather than, rather than trying to squeeze mindfulness or the Dharma into my mouse and my screen, and making my mouse and screen life the primary reference point, the primary reference point instead is, for a moment in this imagination, is the universe of the Bodhisattva. And then right there in the universe of the Bodhisattva, there's my mouse and my screen. <laughs> I don't have to be without it, you know? But the frame is different. Instead of trying to fit mindfulness into this, what I am and what's manifesting for me fits in this larger context. I think one of the most important things that a shift in frame like this can, can invite is that the, the project of, um, say some of the motivations that we have, uh, the project of how can I be more awesome becomes how can I grow in the most wholesome way to benefit the most number of beings. You can hear how it's a shift in values. This weekend I went to the D. Young Museum. Has anyone been there recently? There's this amazing exhibit right now, the art of Kehinde Wiley. It was unbelievable. The scale was enormous. And the things that he, things that he did with color and composition, the lighting is so dark that all you really see are the paintings. And then it's like very dark hues, very, very shadowy beyond, right? Yeah, what he, did, what he did was really captivating. And what I noticed was after going through the exhibit, the, the, final, the final piece of the exhibit, there's like a walkthrough in a particular order, is this enormous, it's got to be as tall as this room, this enormous bronze horse with a, a man laying dead on his side, on the, just larger than life, right? And having entered that space for, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes, for that, for that bit of time, it was like the rest of my world sort of quieted down. This was the engagement. This was the engagement. The content, the thought, his premise was really well considered and powerful. And what I noticed is when I left the gallery, the trees were different. It was like the function of my eye had changed. The colors were different. What I want to point out here is that there's this, there's this capacity that we participate in where we, we are both conditioned by what we bring in and we condition. It's mutual. It's like, I was totally conditioned by this person's art. 
and participating in it through observation did something really keen to my eyes such that when I left, my perception had changed. It was pretty remarkable. And we do the same sort of thing in vision. But taking these opportunities to like tap into what I'm calling the Bodhisattva universe, we're doing a similar sort of thing where we're conditioning ourselves in some kind of way with religious art such that little shifts in our perception can arise. I think it's a really fruitful one to see um, you know, whatever value I have for this art that I'm viewing, that my heart opens to the benefit of all beings. And then the motivation to cultivate the qualities for that. That's, what, that's Zen practice in a nutshell. After my saying, Zen practice in a nutshell, uh, some, some might be wondering, like, Koto, where's the meditation come in? <laughs> like, Zen is all about meditation. And that's included in these six perfections, actually. We'll get there in a moment. But first, I want to talk about the sort of motive force in the Bodhisattva universe. And it, it's, um, this was related to how, like, every, every narrative world has its own logic and its own pull and movement. And what animates the Bodhisattva universe is something called the four immeasurable, immeasurable vows. The four Bodhisattva vows. I keep using this word Bodhisattva and I haven't told you what it means, I'm just realizing. Uh, Bodhi means awakening. And Sattva means being. Uh, just like we say human being. So in the same sense. It's like a, a Bodhi being, an awakening being. So, the four bodhisattva vows motivate, animate this sort of universe that we're talking about. And um, SFCC has a certain rendering, but I really, wa I wa I really like one by uh, Aitken Roshi. And they go like this. One is, first, the first vow, the first immeasurable vow is to save, to save many beings. And the second one is to abandon Greed, hatred, and delusion. So, in these first two, you can, you can hear how we're sort of addressing the initial concern of like, oh, if my, if my practice is only measuring according to my self-evaluation or maybe even my self-criticism, instead we can shift the frame. I'm gonna do this for, I'm gonna do this for other beings. I'm gonna do it to benefit as many people as I can. And then maybe the um, subjective quality of our meditation isn't the most important thing. But we make this real. We make the benefit to other beings real by learning how to abandon greed, hatred, and delusion. So those are the first two. The third is to awaken to countless teachings. Uh, when we think of the skillful means available in, uh, in Buddhism, they're countless. We say, we say 84,000, but I think that's an imprecise number. And the fourth, to embody the Buddha way. In other words, to develop these six perfections, to develop these six qualities of a Buddha. So these are the intentions, they're the vows that animate. 
I want to pause here and mention that like these these can come up as like part and parcel of the entering into the art, art of a bodhisattva universe, like a glimpse into a different perspective. These can also sort of naturally develop over the course of a, motiva- uh, a, a, a meditation practice over months or years. One of the... Uh, there's a, there's a, a teacher and a long-time practitioner that found that after years, unbeknownst to him, <laughs> after years of meditation practice, what he discovered was that when his heart was most still and quiet, that when he touched into like the seed of his most most intimate intention in the world, they were best articulated by these four vows, motivated to realize awakening and awakening for others. A note about them being immeasurable. Uh, we, we often like to say that they are impossible. <laughs> the four impossible vows. Because um, we vow, in the SFCC rendering, we vow to, um, beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. <laughs> I don't know how possible that is, but I'm going to keep going. That's what we say. Um, in, the, uh, in the traditional lineage, stretching back the lineage of ancestors, the sixth Chinese ancestor is, in, interprets this as, I vow to save all the beings of my own mind. The second, we say, delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Seems pretty big. The third, to wake to countless teachings, we render it here as Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. And in other words, as many teachings as there are, written or unwritten, I vow to master them all. Starting with one. It doesn't have to be too big right now. And then Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. I think part of the power of their immeasurability or their impossibility is that by necessity, an immeasurable, immeasurable vow calls us beyond our personal ability into something, into something bigger, into the world of beings we're related to, into the earth that holds us up. The aspiration is so big, it's not just limited to our life as we know it. So yeah, four immeasurable vows, 44 bodhisattva vows to animate this universe. Then the content, the content of that practice, like moving through the bodhisattva universe, is the six perfections, the six paramitas. I really want to call attention to this before I tell you exactly what they are. And that is... um, I started reading this book by Reb, Tension Reb Anderson, about these six perfections. And in his, in his many years of teaching experience, it came to be known to him that for, for folks that are looking for an answer to the question, 
how do I practice in my daily life? And how do I practice with my family and friends? That the six perfections were the, the answer to that, pra that, uh, that practice. They're part of this bodhisattva universe because they, they are the qualities of a Buddha. And they go something like this. The first is dana, giving, generosity. Many of you have heard me talk about this one quite a bit. The second is shila, or ethical discipline, virtuous behavior. Right? And that comes with uh, um, learning how to become skillful in whether we're harming or helping ourselves and others. The third is patience, kashanti. And these first three, the giving, virtue, and patience, they're said to um, be more on the side of uh, benefiting other beings. Whereas the second three tend to emphasize liberating them. We could, of course, get into a discussion about the relative benefit of liberation and the other one, but just to hold that in your mind for reflection. So these first three, giving, virtue, patience, emphasize benefiting others. Then the second three that emphasize liberation, energy, virya, and that's the energy to do the practice. The fifth is uh, our most familiar. This is where this is where Zen gets its name, Dhyana Paramita. Dhyana became Chan, became Zen. So this one gets a lot of airtime. <laughs> and then the last is Prajna, wisdom, the perfection of wisdom. So if, if we could say that a Buddha, a Buddha arises with the perfection of giving virtue, patience, energy, meditation, and wisdom. Maybe that can encapsulate a Buddha. But in broad strokes, that's what the tradition holds. Reb describes it in this really artful way. He says that these practices, these six practices, they invite us to enter the mind of Buddha. That they're based on the bodhisattva vow to become a Buddha in order to benefit and liber liberate beings. And then to cut through all the pomp and circumstance, all the, all the loftiness of talking this way, he then follows up with one of Suzuki Roshi's teachings, it's the founder here, that these are six practices that we, we enact and we put our energy into in order to just be ourselves. And this is based upon the notion that in order to really be fully ourselves and learn how to express ourselves in the world, it takes a little bit of training, it takes a little bit of practice. In one of these ancient texts that um, that he teaches, on, that Reb teaches on a lot, it has them going in order. That someone who develops generosity, um, they become virtuous. Someone who ha has matured in virtue becomes patient. Who be, who, someone who has become patient arrives at energy to do the practice. 
and attains concentration and then perfects wisdom. But then we're like, oh, wait, we all, I, I don't know how many of us, probably most of us, started through the meditation door. So, um, yeah, it doesn't have to go. It doesn't have to go through. But um, why this becomes relevant to the issue we brought up at the beginning, like the perils of self-evaluation and self-criticism as it relates to the meditation, is that if you can imagine sort of growing up through these qualities before you make your way to the cushion, in theory, the mind might be much more settled on the whole. So one, one application of these qualities is if you're, if you're on the cushion and the mind is just not settling down over a long, like, long period of time, over the long arc, something you can do is move your way back through these qualities. You can investigate. You can be like, okay, I'm unsettled here in meditation. Is my energy balanced? Okay, that looks okay. I mean, maybe make my way back to patience. Be like, oh, am I, am, I, am I being patient with the practice? Am I being patient with my impatience of the practice? Or am I, am I demanding something out of the practice right now that it should look X, Y, and Z way? If that looks okay, you can make your way back. Am I being generous with my difficulties? Or further back, is there some, is there some disturbance in my ethical life that needs handling. So whatever, we, whatever we do off the cushion comes right with us. There's no, there's no clear line. So in one way that can be a sort of helpful application of these six paramitas. There are ways to look into the mind if, based on how the meditation is going. Look into, look into these. So, I'm going to take just a couple more minutes, kind of to invite us back into a, a, just a short guided meditation together, invoking these six qualities. And when we think about the power of words, just name, naming these qualities and their their synonyms or variations on them. And seeing for you what, what arises. No need to grab onto anything and keep it. And anything that's important will stay or will come back later. But coming back into the body and to invoke or sense or feel the quality of generosity or giving. It's complement of receiving or offering. This attitude of graciousness and welcoming And then second, Sheila, attentiveness to our actions, to our thoughts. This is care and tenderness, 
It's letting go of clinging to personal gain and loss. Third, Kashanti, patience. Presence, endurance, tolerance, not controlling. Fourth, calling in virya, our joyful energy, our diligence, vigor, enthusiasm. Fifth, tuning into dhyana. It's our focus, our non-distraction. Tranquility. And sixth, calling in this quality of prajna. A never-ending practice of wisdom. the profound understanding of our nature and our relationship with all beings. So invoking all this, what is arising? Any thoughts or sensations or intentions? attitudes or moods. Any shifts. Thank you. So Imagination and the four bodhisattva vows, the six perfections. What I'm wanting, what I'm wanting to open up and hope we opened up tonight is the, the way that intention and imagination can make us sensitive, sensitive to the possibility for the growth of wholesome qualities. We're, um, we're borrowing much from some of this ancient, ancient literature and this ancient context to shift the frame and maybe to invite the possibility of st stepping out of some of our limited frames of reference into something vast and joyful, like a universe filled with bodhisattvas. Imagine.